Hello and welcome to Business Line Podcast. I'm your host Aksha Chandrasekharan. In this episode we're going to take a look at transformational changes underway in the industry with the AI and ML boom. AI is already at work all around us and it is gradually becoming a standard in many businesses. Each and every field is going to feel the impact and everyone is actively thinking about how to compete in the age of AI. What are the new eight skills students need? How do working professionals upskill themselves? What is the industry looking for? And even some broader questions like what is the relationship between humans and machines? That's what we're discussing today. The co-founder and CEO of Talent Sprint Shantanu Paul speaks on good authority in this regard. Talent Sprint, a NEC group company, is a digital upskilling platform for professionals in search of deep and disruptive skills. Shantanu guides strategy and growth at the 11-year-old edtech company. He has a B.Tech from IIT Madras and Ph.D. from the University of Michigan, both in computer science. Shantanu began his professional career in New York at the IBM T.J. Watson Research Center in Yorktown Heights. He has authored 20-plus research papers and is an inventor on two U.S. patents. He now serves on various advisory boards and committees of banks, financial institutions, and high-tech firms. He has been a visiting professor of entrepreneurship and computing at leading academic institutions and is a sought-after speaker in business and tech conferences. Shantanu, thank you for speaking with Business Line today. Let's start this conversation by breaking down the myth that AI's impact will be largely restricted to the tech world. Yeah, so AI and ML, um, in fact, uh, there is a saying by Andrew Ng, who is one of the leaders in uh, AI machine learning, who is a professor at Stanford. Andrew Ng was uh, quoted a few years ago saying that AI and ML are the new electricity. So the question that you're asking is akin to saying, you know, where does electricity have impact in which industry? The answer, of course, is everywhere. So similarly, AI and machine learning, I think, are turning out to be the next kind of uh, electrical equivalent for the modern world, where there will be no uh, sector which is not affected by AI machine learning. In fact, just as, uh, you know, after the invention of electricity, every industry found ways to adopt it for production, for distribution, for transportation, for lighting, for charging, or whatever you call it. I mean, there must be at least a million use cases of how we use electricity and power. Similarly, AI machine learning is a horizontal technology, which means that it has application in every industry, in every sector. Now, that's a broad response to your question. Having said that, where does it go first? In which industries are, I would like to see impact the first and the fastest? And that also, you can answer the question by following the trail of where does technology go fast? For example, if you look at uh, global applications of technology, technology is used in various industries, but one can argue that banking and financial services is where technology gets used a lot. And we've all seen that because today, for example, I can't remember the last time you've gone to a branch. None of us have been to a branch in a long time. We're doing mobile banking, etc. Then similarly, if you look at other sectors beyond beyond banking and financial services, then you're looking at um, healthcare, where I think AI machine learning is going to play a massive role. Then you look at automobiles and look at aviation. I mean, already we know that you know, today's modern cars are smart cars. Then you look at uh, airplanes. I mean, even since 1990, we've heard about, you know, Boeing and Airbus talking about fly-by-wire, which essentially is saying a highly automated flying machine where the human role is that of a supervisor as a pilot and not a flyer as a pilot, right? So if I look across, uh, there is just a huge area of impact. Uh, and I could go on and on about this for many, many hours. But just to start the conversation, I would say that uh, certainly banking financial services, certainly healthcare, certainly insurance, certainly automobile, certainly aviation, 
smart homes, certainly, you know, housing, certainly transportation, right? So all of these sectors, which we are uh, deeply intertwined with in modern industry and modern, uh, you know, I would say modern urban experience, we are all involved in these sectors as consumers or benefit beneficiaries. All of these are going to be affected without a shade of doubt. So what are the big requirements from the modern day recruiters? Everyone keeps saying 21st century skills, but never go into the nitty gritty of what they actually are. So my simple question is, who is going to be valuable and who is not? Yeah, so I think the first thing that uh, everyone's looking for is computational thinking, which, uh, you know, we have, uh, if you just go back for a minute and say that, uh, how do historically job exams work in India, right? We have had uh, banks, for example, or Indian railways or various uh, industries and sectors recruit through examinations. Take an example. IT is different, but let me, I'll come to IT later. But let's say many of these industries, sectors have been hiring young people out of college through examinations. If you go to examinations, they check for certain basic things like numerical reasoning, right? They check for logical reasoning. They look for verbal reasoning. So these are certain things we talk about as aptitude. Or if you have a good aptitude in numbers, it gets tested by numerical reasoning. If you have a good aptitude for words and language, it gets tested by verbal reasoning. If you're good at solving problems through logic, it gets tested through logical reasoning. And for the last few, maybe 50, 60, 100 years, that's how selections have worked, looking at people with these different lenses. However, I think now we're going to see people being selected on computational thinking or computational reasoning. So if I give you a problem that has to be solved through a software or algorithm or using a computer, how would you think about how to solve the problem? That's called computational reasoning or computational thinking. So this is clearly one area where we're going to see a massive change in the way people are looking for talent. And for example, earlier the feeling was, oh, engineering is all about, you know, somebody does CS, computer science and IT, they know how to code and therefore they get picked up by tech companies but if i'm a mechanical engineer or a civil engineer i don't have to worry about all this because coding is not for me i'm just going to go off and you know do my construction in a field or whatever or building a car in a factory well guess what if ai and machine learning is going to pervade construction and manufacturing and automobiles like we just discussed in the previous question clearly each and every profession each and every field of engineering each and every field of science and may i say each and every field of the professional services is going to require a computational thinking approach because computers are coming for you and beyond that ai is coming for you so that's the clear change i see that computational thinking will be one of the key clear requirements in this whole space and of course behind that you might might have even heard of things talk talk about 21st century skills and one of them is critical thinking so to be a good computational thinker you must first be a very critical thinker so critical thinking means you can formulate problems you can then apply computational technique through computational reasoning we solve that. So that's one clear area I see that. The second part, which is very specific to AI, is the importance of data. If I give somebody a million records of data, a million data points, right? For example, let's say we walk into the nearby, you know, uh, Apollo uh, Pharmacy, as an example, or uh, MedPlus Pharmacy, medical, you know, Dubai Medicine. And for whatever reason, we know the owner of the shop and we ask the person, give me your last 30 days of transactional data of what people are coming and buying because you know every day maybe 500 people walk in and buy medicines and then 500 times uh, 30 days we have 15,000 data points of transactions maybe everybody buys three medicines on average you have 4,500 actual pieces of sale right and there are different drugs different price points so if I give you the data as a modern professional what can you do with that data right can you come back and tell me how to run my business better can you tell me how to reorganize my inventory management in a pharmacy so people who can look at data and apply insights to extract meaning from data 
I think those are the people that are going to be highly valuable. Clearly, because we know that post-pandemic and certainly even before the pandemic, everything is getting automated. There is a massive push globally towards automation in every business, every industry. When there's automation, you have a massive explosion of data and transactional data, customer data. And then maybe, you know, if you look at that and somebody has gone to social media and written about this pharmacy and said that this pharmacy is good at this, but bad at that. And you collect that social media data. Can you create more insights from that as to how this business should do its customer relationship management or patient relationship management? So those who can apply computational thinking and apply data analytical thinking, that's going to be the biggest requirement of the modern uh, recruiters. And I think we are seeing that already. Now, beyond that, if you know your AI algorithms and machine learning algorithms, of course, that's a great bonus. For young students uh, coming out of college, I don't think people expect them to be experts in all this. Uh, companies are pretty benign. They're very understanding. They only look for, do you have computational thinking? Do you have data, so data analytical thinking? Can you put it all together into solving problems? Can you look at large amounts of data and write Python code or maybe some R code to analyze all this information, give us some good insights? I think those are the skills that young professionals have to demonstrate. I know you have an interesting insight about how to demonstrate these skills after you have acquired them. Would you like to share that? I was talking to a professor in Berkeley, uh, Professor Iklak Sith, who is eminent professor of innovation engineering, and he gave me this uh, soundbite as in normal conversation. He said, project is a new interview, right? In the future, if you can show that you've done a great project, interviews are not required. Because ultimately, what do companies want you to want to check in an interview? They want to check that you can solve complex problems. And if you've done a great project, whether you are a young professional or a working professional, if you are able to show through a project that you've done that you can demonstrate computational thinking, problem solving, data analytical reasoning, writing some code in these new modern languages of data science, then all of a sudden, you know, your project will speak for yourself. So that's really what companies are looking for. They're not looking for just knowledge. They're looking for people who can apply knowledge to solve real-world complex problems that require computational data-oriented thinking. Addressing the elephant in the room, what do you think about the notion that if AI comes too big, all the jobs are gone? Is that an outdated mindset or is it rooted in any reality? Yeah, that's a great question, Akshay. It has many, many uh, interesting layers to that question. I'll start off by saying that you're absolutely correct that um, you know AI has got multiple levels of impact. At the most rudimentary level, as a human being, we can look at an AI and say, oh, it's my competition, it's going to take away my job. That, I think, is a very knee-jerk reaction. But you go to one level higher, AI is not your competitor, AI is your collaborator. But having said that, in different industries, we all know now that the human-machine combination is real expertise. Expertise is not just humans anymore. And certainly machines, we don't trust their expertise to the full extent. But we believe that a human who is empowered with or augmented with great amount of computational and AI capabilities is obviously going to be a far superior uh, professional. I think that's a given at this point in time. That's, I think, the part, part answer to your question about what do you think is the reality of human-machine uh, interaction? Going beyond that, there's a clear dichotomy in how we think as individuals. We think like consumers and when we think like employees. Let me give an example. All of us are used to using, you know, by now we love using Zomato or Swiggy, right? And uh, if I tell you now, for example, after having used Zomato or Swiggy for the last few years, I take away your cell phone and I say for the next three months, if you have to order food, you have to pick up a phone, a landline, call a number, talk to a person, give your order, and then wait for that person to deliver. I'm willing to bet 99% of us will refuse to do that because we've gotten used to an automated interface to ordering food. So clearly, when you are consumers, we love automation. As consumers, we hate the idea of dealing with other human beings most of the time. 
Of course, it's a critical emergency. You're in a hospital. You want to see a nurse or a doctor. That's different. Then we want humans. But for most ordinary transactions, we love the idea of automation and we hate the idea of having to be with a human because humans become interference. They're not very well trained most of the time. Their knowledge of their product catalog is poor. But guess what? In an automated fashion through an app, we are all very happy. So as consumers, we love automation when we're looking at the other side. Now flip it and say you are the person who runs Zomato, right? You are the investor or you are the owner of Zomato. Well, guess what? You don't want to have a million people running around taking orders either because you know customer satisfaction is going to be very low if you have too many people taking orders. You have to have people to deliver orders to people's doorsteps. That is a necessity because we don't have any other way of doing it better yet. But in terms of taking orders, we don't want humans involved. So Zomato as a or as or a Swiggy or an owner of a you know a modern consumer internet business would always prefer more automation and less humans in their workforce. So there's a second example. So consumers love technology and so do people who create companies. The only person who doesn't like technology in this format is a person wearing the hat of an employee because they think, oh my God, if AI becomes too big, then all the jobs are gone. So clearly, I think when we think like a consumer, we love technology. When we think like an employee, we are afraid of technology for good reason because we are afraid of losing our livelihoods. So the question about industry wanting to do more automation, I think is established. It's given. It's a question of economics. You can produce more output with less human beings, which costs money. That is always going to be a preference for industry and entrepreneurs to have more and more automation as fast as possible. Now, there was a psychological barrier to this up until a year and a half ago when people thought that if I aggressively, as an entrepreneur, automate my business, what am I going to tell my employees? They're going to feel bad that I'm laying them off or whatever. After the pandemic, the problem has become even more uh, obvious that uh, you know a lot of these companies which have had to do massive reduction in workforce because they didn't have enough work, when they start building back, I don't see them building back the same level of humans. They're going to build back more technology faster. Because technology end of the day is cheap and technology at scale costs zero and technology does not need HR supervision. Technology doesn't want uh, holidays. I mean, whatever you call it. Uh, so end of the day, I think the resistance to more automation is gone from entrepreneurs, gone from investors, gone from consumers. The only block of resistance is employees. And here, I think I would say the employees or people as our professionals, if we augment ourselves, each of us as, as professionals decide to augment ourselves with more knowledge of AI, machine learning and all the modern technologies, we are going to be far more productive professionals. So I think the future is clear that uh, there is a world for people who are technology enabled humans and they get all the prime jobs of the future. And there are people who are not learning technology, choosing to remain you know, ignorant of technology. And for them, the wages will continue to fall and the quality of work will continue to decline. All questions about the future of work are tricky because one cannot see the future. But I believe as a subject matter expert and as someone who's been following the industry trends, you might have some indications on where things are going. Where are we headed? In, in my estimation, estimation, it's going to be like a future of the workforce has three different sets of workforces or work workers, right? At the top of the hierarchy are people who are capable of creating new ideas. So I call them idea creators, right? So if you're an idea creator, then you know you have all this potential. So for example, just think of an example. Somebody comes up with a great idea and that idea becomes the next Uber or the next Airbnb. So clearly if you are somebody who can generate ideas and implement them, then I think you're top of the hierarchy because clearly one of the premiums in the world of the future is idea generators can create companies, can create products, can create new service lines, and therefore, anybody who can create a new company or a product or a service line has a huge economic value. 
So if you're an idea creator, then I think your future, you're an innovator, right? So you're the top of the hierarchy. If innovators are, in my view, maybe they'll be one or 2% of the future of the workforce, but they'll have disproportionate control over the future of the workforce. So they'll be at the top of the hierarchy. We call them innovators. Then the next layer, which might be 20, 30, 40% of the pyramid, is going to be the professionals. And these are professionals we just talked about. The person who goes into training, gets educated, learns about how to apply new technology to their existing profession. Whether you're a chartered accountant or a doctor, an engineer, or a pilot, it doesn't really matter. You're going to have to embed yourself in a world of deep technology skills. And, and if you do that, then you are that surgeon who can do robotic surgery. You are that commander of a plane who can fly a wired, you know, fully automated aircraft. Or you are that person who can command a police force that can use technology to take down terrorists, right? Whatever it is in your profession. If you are the person who can leverage technology as a professional, then you're going to be a superior professional, right? And that to me is the big opportunity of the future because the volumes are going to be at least 30, 40% of the workforce will be in the category of people who will be able to apply the knowledge of deep technology to their existing professional skill sets, right? So medicine will continue, law will continue, accounting will continue, engineering will continue, science will continue, but all the professionals will get embedded in this new world of technology-wrapped expertise. That leaves about 50% of the population, which I think is actually going to be where the polarization of wealth will happen. This bottom 50% of the population will actually struggle for high wages because not having been part of the top 1% innovators and not being part of the professional class, these are people who will actually be forced, in my view, to accept work on behalf of the people above. In other words, the so-called bureaucracy will disappear, the so-called middle management will disappear. What will remain are people who have to implement what the algorithm says. So people at the top are building the algorithm, the innovators are coming up with the algorithm idea, professionals are building the algorithms and actually implementing it, and then the rest of the people are following the algorithm. Now to use a very, I would say, a little bit of a uh, not so pleasant example, think of the Uber driver of today. <clears throat> the Uber driver of today is at the mercy of this big Uber machine. The Uber machine tells them when to pick up someone, where to pick them up from, it tells them where to drop them off. It rewards them from doing exactly what the algorithm says. For example, if it says go from point A to point B using this path and the driver follows it, they get rewarded. If they deviate from the path, they get penalized. So in other words, we normally think that machines work for humans, but I would argue now with the example of Uber that the opposite is true. Humans are working for machines. It's perfectly visible. Now, if you take that analogy and keep going and say, okay, then maybe the next thing is like people who are delivering Amazon goods to our houses. They're also at the mercy of the machine, right? They're also following what the Amazon delivery app is telling them to do, where to pick it up, where to drop it off. So long story short, this is where the polarization of wealth will begin, right? The people at the top will enjoy disproportionate rewards. The next level will also enjoy great rewards. And then people who are at the mercy of the machine might actually lose out because that's not where the wages will be paid. So in a way, good news for level one and level two, not so good news for level three is my view of the future of the workforce. Wow. Thank you so much, Shantanu, for taking the time out and speaking with us today. I had a lot of aha moments throughout the episode and I'm certain that the listeners did too. Thank you for tuning in. If you like what you heard, share the link, check out our website, thehindubusinessline.com and watch our videos on youtube.com slash thehindubusinessline. My name is Aksha Chandrasekharan and you'll hear more from me next time. Thank you.